0: Two, three years back when I was finding my permissions, people were very, they didn't really know what to make of this. Three years down the line, when I arrive on the farm, if I bump into someone driving a tractor, they'll stop, they'll ask how the bird is, and then they'll proceed to tell me what they've seen. This, there's a nest here, there's, they've seen more owls this year, fewer other birds that they would normally expect last season, and they'll link it to a crop change, and its it just sparks interest. Um, So, there's all these different uh, value adds of having a niche interest group working in a specific area.
1: Hey, how's it going everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast and what is now the start of our journey through South Africa. We appreciate you continuing to join us through our different travels and conversations with lots of different Falconers from around the world and this series and episode wouldn't have been possible without the Cape Falconry Club reaching out to us and extending an invite to come join us for their week-long meet recently, as well as kind of being able to sit in on the IUCN and IAF joint conference that they helped host as well. I really learned a lot during this trip. It was very eye-opening in a lot of different ways, and I'm very thankful to have gotten a chance to meet so many interesting people with a, um, a very common interest. So I also have to extend a big thank you to the Falconry Heritage Trust, uh, who is also very instrumental in sponsoring a lot of the travel expenses for this journey. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the Falconry Heritage Trust, it's an organization that's dedicated to conserving falconry's cultural heritage. It also aims to link the international falconry community, uh, national archives and collections, private collectors and academics to ensure that items and information related to the sport's global history are protected for future generations. So another organization that is trying to do things to you know, preserve falconry across the world. So if you want to find out more about the Falconry Heritage Trust and possibly donate to them or help support them, just head to falconryheritage.org and you can read up on them and find out more information and of course i also have to extend a thank you to our new sponsor being Yaga crafts from poland you've heard me brag about his amazing products here on uh, the podcast before i'm sure but if you haven't had a chance to yet i highly recommend that you head to Yaga goshawk on instagram And uh, check out some amazing pictures of some of the different things that he makes and crafts. It's good quality handmade stuff. If you uh, check it out and get some, I'm sure that you won't regret it. So please check it out. And this first episode with Ricard was... Actually recorded kind of in between breaks at the joint IUCN-IEF conference that we attended the first couple days That I was in South Africa around Cape Town And I got a chance to steal him away for a little bit and um, get a chance to find out what um, Falconry is like for him in the province where he's located and you know find out some of my initial I don't know, just kind of information about how things work in South Africa for falconry, amongst other things. So I hope you enjoy the start of this series featuring falconry in South Africa, and I will go ahead and turn things over to this conversation for you to enjoy. So here we go. The last two days have been a whirlwind for me. It sounds like you've done some traveling yourself. I'm I'm very happy to be here in South Africa to kick off this series with you. And, you know, like I said, I'm glad to meet your acquaintance along with so many other cool people. And i um, glad that you decided to do this on short notice. And, you know, had just really happy to be here and have you here.
0: Yeah, thank you, John. Certainly, um, when I arrived in Cape Town last night, I didn't expect to be sitting across the table from you recording... Uh, a podcast. It's it's very surreal. It sounds almost as though I'm in my car listening to your um podcast on the way to work in the morning. There's a need for Falconer's stories to be told. I think what we we are such a multi or going back for centuries, already one of the few organizations or bodies or groups that have such a rich um history of uh transferring knowledge from one generation to the next through well, the arts and practice of falconry, and we tend to be quite quiet and on the side and below the radar. And it's quite nice to actually hear the stories of falconers all around the world. Um, it's very inspirational for us here.
1: Very cool. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, everybody seems to be getting something out of it that I talk to, you know, for the most part. I mean, it, it still is, is very humbling to have people, you know, say those things. And, you know, I'm, like I said, it makes me happy. As long as I keep hearing that stuff, I'll continue to do it. And as long as I'm not just completely poor and destitute and able to <laughs> get around still and all that, but, but remind me again, I mean, we were talking earlier before all this stuff, you know, kind of transpired and we were talking at the, uh, the conference earlier about, you know, kind of where you live, where you're from refresh my memory again, exactly where you're, where you're from. And, you know, just kind of where that's at, you know, on, on the map, so to speak, for Africa.
0: Right. So right now we're in Cape Town, which is right down in the south of the country in a winter rainfall area. Um, I grew up in the town of Leidenburg in the province of Mpumalanga. It's a, one of the northeastern provinces. um, So just sort of sandwiched next to Mozambique and Swaziland up in the sort of northeastern part of the country. Um, I currently live in Gauteng, where I'm part of the Transvaal Falconry Club. Um, So Gauteng is more the economic hub of the country, a lot of mining um, and heavy industry happening there. Um, So I live in Pretoria, um, a collection of small towns that become a city.
1: Yeah, like I said, when we were talking earlier, is people have heard me mention many times before here on the podcast, I am a geographical idiot. So, you know, I mean, like I said, getting the perspective, you know, of where that's at and everything, it it does help. And, you know, I'm, like I said, I, I probably still won't be able to put two and two together half the time as we're, as we're talking, but like, it helps, you know, at least relatively knowing to a certain degree where you're, where you're at. And, you know, I mean, you said that you've kind of been involved in a lot of this from an early age, right? Yeah, so uh, if I'll go into it a little bit. Um,
0: I think my first exposures to falconry were at a bird of prey rehabilitation center when I was quite little. Uh, the bird of prey centers in Dahlstrom and is still run um, by falconers. Um, with a big, a big function in public education and that, that sparked the interest after that in Arabia, um, we lived there for two years where my parents who are veterinarians did some on the side work with birds of prey that were injured on the farm we were on. And I had the privilege of feeding these, um, step injured step Eagles every day. And it just created this interest in birds of prey. Um, when we came back to South Africa, uh, there was a kestrel that came into my parents' clinic with a broken wing and it coincided that uh, an old uncle of mine who lived in Zimbabwe, he, he'd been a, a big naturalist and a zookeeper, um, gave me a book on falconry, H.M. H. Woodford's book, very old, and I took the kestrel, I took the book and I started manning it and A falconer came in from the same bird of prey center where I'd first seen falconry, and they saw me manning the bird in my parents' clinic, and said, "Well, we'll we'll take you under our wing. We'll show you the right way to do this." And they helped me register with our club, and they became my mentors, my sponsors. Um, And from then on through high school, uh, I flew African goshawks much. To my enjoyment, every afternoon after school, I would walk all the way out of town, hunt on the edges of town, um, trying to catch doves and anything else that flew. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, nice start um, in my career as a falconer. After that time, I had to study, so I, my focus shifted away, but I maintained contact through my mentors to the community and was always aware of what was happening. And I think during COVID nineteen, when we had lockdown, I I really needed something to do to get me out. And that's when I reached out to the Falconry Community again, and I got in touch with the Transvaal Club, who got me birded and and flying. And from then, my involvements become very heavy in the um, club administration and working with the conservation bodies and the falconers trying to formalize the club structures and yeah it's uh it's always a balancing act between that and flying but uh, it's been it's been very a very nice uh, journey
1: very cool yeah i mean one thing that i've learned firsthand from i don't know especially the last couple of years and being a little bit more involved now with with our state club and i mean it, it is amazing how much work and dedication kind of goes into you know that um it's another labor of love i guess you can say you know getting involved in something like that
0: yes yes but it it needs to be done um without it none of us would be able to practice falconry so it's it's necessary i think we we all have a vested interest in seeing that falconry remains accessible to us and especially here where we have a legal wild take, um, that it's, it's a huge privilege that um, we need to look after. And um, you're working with the conservation bodies to prove that the populations are stable, to um, make sure that we follow the, the guidelines and help develop the, the policies for managing um, the quota is, is quite an important um, function.
1: Well, and we were, that's one of the things that we were kind of talking about earlier as well before the conference started was, you know, just kind of the, some of the subtle differences between, I mean, you were asking me questions about how things work in the U.S. with our system. And, you know, we were kind of talking back and forth between, you know, about some of those, you know, subtle differences between the U.S. and and South Africa and, so, I mean, let's kind of talk about that some. I'm sure this is a, a topic that's going to be broached more as the coming week, you know, transpires with all these other falconers that I'm supposed to be, you know, talking with uh, at the meet over the next week and and things like that. But I mean, where you're where you're at, and you know, like as far as like the different countries in Africa and you know, South Africa are they pretty much on mostly the same system or is it kind of like in the states where every state kind of runs off the same core basic set of of rules and regulations but like every state's a little different from each other or kind of explain some of the differences between you know the how falconry is done you know in in this country versus you know some of the other parts of Africa yeah so um
0: this might be a question to direct to some of the more senior um, falconers who've had many more years under the belt because they were part of the the, the formalization of falconry here. It'll be talked about um, with them, I'm sure. No, but. F- for sure. So I think the South African falconry um, was developed out of the frameworks developed in Zimbabwe, which is our neighboring country, formula, formerly Rhodesia. Um, I, I do stand to be corrected on that point because I don't think I was alive at that stage (laughs) um with here in south africa we have an umbrella organization called the south african falconry association where each of our there's nine provinces in the country um each provinces has a nature conservation authority managing their natural resources um so typically in each province there's one or two clubs in which the falcons are organized and they all belong to the south african Falconry association so that's um a, a sort of governing board um where all the falconers from every club put forward representatives and we deal with national and high level topics and are able to advise clubs and and get everyone working in in one direction so that uh, there's a convergence of Policy or convergence of directions in which the different falconers are working on on their um, local level. Within each of the clubs, we follow a tiered structure, very similar to what you have with apprentice, general, master. Here they call them grades. We have D grade, apprentice, C grade, which is intermediate, a B grade, which is your General Falconer and then A grades, which are masters. Um, Yeah, and it's a, there's a, there's a route that follows species that matches species to competence to grading. So there's a structured mentorship plan that, well, there's mentorship and then there's a structured progression plan through the different species and grades as you master certain competencies. I think, um, We have a very, very diverse number of birds of prey here that are available to us and mastery of one group does not necessarily mean you have the skill set required to take on long wings or the micro short wings. So there's a lot of these little parcels of information that you need to master and yeah, within such a small falconry community of only 112 falconers in the country. Um, you end up having to network nationally anyway. Um, So yeah,
1: that's that gives a loose idea of the structure here in South Africa. Gotcha. So as far as like your ability to work with other species, that's totally dependent on other people's view of your overall competency level then, like as far as, you know, you being able to move on to different species or whatever, like other people have to, you know, basically clear you for that you know before you can move to the next tier then and is that kind of sort of in a way how that works then
0: yeah so so it's typically a review by the respected senior falconers who well and your mentor your mentor makes the recommendation and the other senior falconers have their views (laughs) and at the end of the day everyone Buys into the idea of certain competencies needing to be in place. They're not strictly formalized, but you need to be able to f- successfully, repeatedly get your hawk onto wild quarry. That
1: is the fundamental of falconry. So, yeah, your your direct mentor has the most weight in the discussion, but you know, other people still have kind of input as far as you know your your ability to advance. Then, in in, in other words, yes, yeah, so I think that's yeah. that
0: that's the yeah the golden thread there yeah yes
1: is there a particular like time limit that you have to spend like certain amount of hours in the field that you have to spend with different people who are making the decisions on whether or not you can advance to these other levels essentially
0: right so formally no informally sure if Mm -hmm. nobody's seen you fly nobody can vouch for your competency so it's it's the onus certainly within gauteng is for the falconer to make sure that he networks Mm -hmm. um Falconry is very much a community, and although we are a lot of strongly individual people um, who typically don't like conforming to um, prescribed ways of doing things and often don't necessarily see eye to eye on many, many things, mm-hmm. the, the need for people to network in order to progress does assure information sharing, which is so key to um, transferring knowledge. And the check for that is if nobody's seeing you fly, nobody can vouch for you. So it, it, it assures the network and the community engages.
1: I gotcha. And so going back then to your specific, you know, um, province, whatever it's called that, you know, that, that you live in, how do the, how are the rules different in yours compared to the other ones in South Africa then?
0: I I think the, the the there's few major differences because we all follow the the, the same the, model the, the yeah. same model that's okay. um, set mm-hmm.
1: collectively in well, Safa. Well, um, and the reason I asked is because like yeah. when we were talking earlier, I explained the subtle differences between state to state. You know, like in the U.S., and I didn't know if if certain provinces had you know kind of those subtle differences, even though you all are following kind of the same structure. You know, I didn't know if, if certain provinces were more, I don't know, strict than others as far as what you can fly at certain times versus or certain levels versus others and, and things like that.
0: Yeah, so I think that's that's fairly standardized um, in terms of what you can fly at which level of competency. That's that's agreed on um, obviously by everyone's representatives to SAFA um, where you'll find more of the differences are the models and how the how the clubs set up their wild take with nature conservation, whether the permits are held by the individual Falconer or held by the club and the club parcels it out between people. So it's it's more in those levels where the distinctions are drawn. So not so much on the Falconers internal things, but rather with engagements to the conservation authorities. I think what surprised me very much is how different provinces from the conservation body side have completely different models for managing wildlife and accessing it so the application processes, what types of permits you need everything is is extremely
1: individual okay um, well and and i guess if you can then just go into a little bit then about how yours is like what what hoops do you do you have to jump through then for your province, you know, to be able to do those things.
0: We have, uh, one or two formal meetings with our conservation body per year. And there's, there's permits requirements we need to meet uh, and, uh, reporting points where we must provide feedback. So, um, one of my duties every year is to collate, um, the activities of the club what's been flown, the success and failure of the birds, what the the fate of the birds was, where they were trapped, where they were released, the coordinates, the ages, all of this. Um we also put our catch reports together, what what species of quarry have been taken and what numbers, um, by which species. Um it's, a, it's very interesting to actually look at that, the diversity of what's getting caught. Um Coupled with this then co observations that we make on nests, uh, bird of prey nests, nest behaviors, threats to nests, so construction development. They're very, very topical in the area we're in because of large scale development. And um, with these then go a motivation for a wild take. So we would like to meet what what our club uh, 22 members would like to fly, and this year we need to take eight black sparrowhawks, three of amber sparrow sparrowhawks, and two peregrines, or four lanners. And um, Nature Conservation compares that with their data that they've collected, and if they're satisfied, they they, they give us the quota. Every member needs to apply individually for the birds Himself, um, but it it all goes through the central contact point of the club, so we're kind of the pipeline connection to nature conservation because we need to maintain an organizational to organization
1: relationship. That's that's an interesting approach. That's completely different, you know, than obviously how we do it. You know, I mean, every everything that we do, we pretty much. I mean, we have our state clubs that help advocate, you know, for us to, you know, our, you know, DNR, you know, Department of Natural Resources, you know, and the government and things like that. But when it comes to getting permits and things like that, you know, we, yeah you know, we basically apply for those permits and things directly to the DNR. We don't, you know, I mean, we don't individually like go through our club that then, you know, then goes to, you know, the, the government and so to speak, it's, it's very interesting how you guys, how you do that then
0: yeah i th- i think it's been set up in this way so that um there's a collective voice um you there's there's always one one body speaking on behalf of it y- your message is stronger um if there's an issue with permitting you representing 22 people rather than having 22 individual voices trying to um trying to manage the same problem um so we put it all into one basket and it it seems to be a stronger a stronger model for um yeah for implementing change and and keeping keeping the privileges we have going
1: yeah no i mean and and yeah you definitely need that that collective voice i mean that's where i think pretty much why you know a lot of these clubs and stuff are formed you know because you do need a collective kind of board or whatever the representation to kind of speak for the you know, the, because <laughs> it's not going to be as effective, like you said, if you have like a, a, a really giant number of people all shouting, you know, the one as opposed to you, you need a, a more streamlined approach to dealing with, you know, your governments and stuff. But uh, but I mean, as far as like where you're at, I mean, that that's an interesting way that you were describing it, too, as far as how you guys decide how much take you wild take you get and stuff. Also, you know, I mean, as far as, you know, deciding you know, the way you, you were describing going about deciding how many permits you can have for certain species and things like that. That was very interesting also. Yeah. I mean, as far as, because we, we kind of have the permits and things for, for um, you know, some of the species like, you know, peregrines and things like that, that are kind of more, you know, different regulated than say, you know, your, your red-tailed hawks and Harris's hawks and things like that. So, I mean, that's interesting how you guys come up with you know determining how many permits you get per species too yes yeah i think it's very much
0: a wild take is a sustainable it's a sustainable take so if you can if you can show that the population can sustain it then there's no there should be no reason why not to take it and particularly if you view um if you view falconers as as, as a safety net for falcons we we become their custodians their partners we're not removing birds permanently from the wild they are in our care for period of time before they are released there's an there's a net there's no net negative on the wild population through the through the through the practices of falconry
1: yeah, especially whenever you take into account, you know, so many of them die within their first year of life and things like that anyway. Yeah. I mean, whenever you look at the statistics and and um, you know, look at the pure numbers, yeah, there there's really not any kind of net negative as far as, you know, our impact on on the populations and stuff. So
0: Yes, yeah. If if anything, there's there's a positive. Um, you know, I've seen very much in on the on the farms where where I fly, um, you know, speaking to the to the farmer, to to the the laborers working on the farm, the guys driving the tractors around the, the interest in seeing birds of prey is, is huge. And as soon as people are exposed to it, there's just, you know, I, two, three years back when I was finding my permissions, people were very, they didn't really know what to make of this three years down the line, when I arrive on the farm, if i bump into someone driving a tractor they'll stop they'll ask how the bird is and then they'll proceed to tell me what they've seen this there's a nest here there's they've seen more owls this year fewer um you know fewer other birds that they would normally expect last season and they'll link it to a crop change and it's it's just sparks interest um so there's all these different uh value adds of having a niche interest group working in a specific area
1: yeah you know and and i i agree and learning how other countries and and places do you know they the, just the whole process involved you know with with how they do things is is really fascinating to me and so i mean as far as the types of species that are flown in your province i mean talk some about you know just some of the species that are more regularly flown Around where you live and stuff, because I mean, like you said, you have such a div- a diverse amount of species that that you all fly, you know, in this in this country. So
0: yes, yeah. So so we're very habitat diverse in in South Africa, and there, there's certain species which are suited for falconry that occur in certain provinces only and not in others. So um, in Gauteng, specifically, um, we fly as a beginner bird, a greater kestrel. Um, it's fantastic a little bird to learn on Um, in terms of native species then lana falcons are accessible sort of uh, quite quite readily accessible Um, also can teach you a thing or two because they're so intelligent of amber sparrowhawks uh, from a a sort of smaller short-wing perspective are superb Um, in my view I have had very little exposure to them, but, um, from watching them in the wild, they are, they're very present and they, they are spectacular, um, black sparrow, hawks are often there. They come and chase my pigeons every day. I have great fun watching them, chase them all over the sky. Um, peregrines are present too. Um, and, and th- those are the species we do fly. Then gabar hawks, we are also, um, permitted to take. Um, they are a bit rarer though. They're scarce. Um, we, I've been looking for one for a while. Uh, yeah. So th- those are the native species. Then non-natives currently being flown in our club are also African goshawks. They come from more river iron foresty areas, which Gauteng is not. Gauteng is flat, um, grassland with very, very few trees. Um, and there's a gentleman in our club called Malcolm Harding who's flying a redneck falcon. So that's a desert dwelling a small little falcon from the kalahari and it's uh, it's chasing a lot of pigeons everywhere which is fantastic to see
1: so as far as your ability to fly some of the non-native species like what level do you have to be to be able to fly those as far as you know kind of where you're you're at so so provincial
0: so non-native non or non-regionally native birds like African goshawks, um, they'll just fall under where they fall in the South African Falconry Association tier. So, an African goshawk is a, a grade bird. It's um, would be sort of intermediate between a, I suppose, more senior apprentice type bird. Um, but you find there's people who have only flown them for years and years and years. They quite a, an adaptable species. Um, and yeah, otherwise it's general falconers flying, you know, accessing redneck falcons and things. Um, yeah, exotics as um, you know, peregrines from out of the country or joe falcons. They're not that common actually up in the northern part of the country, and that's that's primarily the, the preserve of the master falconer.
1: And as far as you know, just some of the birds that that you you know, kind of have had to fly, you know, in your career thus far, I mean, which did you start off with and, you know, which to this point do you think you have the most, or or do you have the most experience with, I guess, to this point? So,
0: so certainly African goshawks, um, I've, I've flown three, um, across five, five seasons and, um, I, I grew up watching them. Um, which in Pumalanga where I grew up, they're, they're fairly common. And um, if, you, if you know where to look, it's quite spectacular watching them fly ambush, ambush hunts. They work the forest margins, um, flying and catching things as they move along the edges. Um, so what was very interesting is taking those observations and my experience on my first two birds and bringing that into Gauteng, which is a flat grassland, and the the style of falconry needs to be very, very different. Um, but you can still get them to work an ambush technique if you know your landscape really well. So they'll work the the ridgelines or the the little stream beds and things, wherever they can get an advantage to try and ambush quarry, they, they will work it, um, provided you give them the opportunity. Um which so that those are the that's the species i'm most comfortable with um i've had two seasons with the lana falcon which was a big change moving from from the short wings short distance short wings up to big uh big long wing Um i definitely uh wasn't expecting to be spending so many mornings
1: in the frost trying to find my falcon it is amazing how all these different species really are kind of their own you know thing you know i mean i in as far as like these different species in you know south africa i'm sure it's really no different right i mean as far as just the the differences and how much they're just how they change and how you have to deal with them and stuff from species to species i i I think you
0: need to have a a diverse skill set that you can that you can apply to the different species but even within each species every bird is different so sure you know having a Having a good toolkit is is there. And you know, on on that on that stream, one of the birds I didn't mention when you asked me about what we fly in our province, um, about two years ago we uh were able to motivate for one African hawk eagle in the club. And um the historically African hawk eagles have been flown at night which is not permitted in our province at all so their people used to lamp them Um, that wasn't allowed we were able to motivate um to get a captive bred African hawk eagle into the club um it's being flown by Ernest Bluchnot our former chairman and he's he's flown very very successfully at here only only during the day and he's breaking the the perception of the past and how they should be flown by collecting all his different experience with black sparrowhawks and he's flown a few harris hawks and a couple of other birds and putting together conversations with people from all over the country and he's managed to work it into a a new model for flying african orc so it's it's quite groundbreaking for us to have been able to motivate for a species we weren't actually allowed to fly previously and be able to turn it into a success. Um yeah. Uh added challenge that it's on the, the edge of a big city. So we had to write how the Hawk Eagle would not be catching people's pets and all these things. <laughs> um which is a significant risk. Um yeah. but yeah, so far so good.
1: Well that's good. But, yeah. yeah. And like I said, I you know it's it's one of those deals where yeah, you um I don't know how do I want to put this it can't be done until it's done so to speak and that's one trend in in falconry especially that i've noticed is you know everybody you know since nobody's done something before it seems like you know everybody's always quick to say that something can't be done until it's done and then all of a sudden everybody wants to know how to do it you know i think that's that's quite general (laughs) in life in many aspects yes yeah for sure yeah well and and as far as you know just kind of going back to some of the birds that you've flown um in particular i mean what were some of the experiences that were i don't know some of the most noteworthy memorable experiences that you had as far as some of the the birds that you had early on and and some of the lessons that they that they taught you i mean as far as your own falconry experience goes
0: um yeah so i think uh my my first my first goshawk was, uh, was quite a step. Um, the first falconry bird I had, um, I can, I can remember calling my mentor, um, Mark Holder, who sadly passed away regularly to ask him minor, minor things, um, all the time. And, uh, that goshawk I flew for two seasons and, um, she, she was a rehab bird. She'd had a broken wing. Um, it was what was available at the time and I learned so much from a very docile bird a very calm well-mannered um and caught only two birds at the start of the first season at the end of the second season so it was a learning curve and perseverance and making sure that you know what you really enjoy is is seeing the bird fly and making sure that you fly the bird every day um I moved over to a little musket who had a lot, was a lot more energetic, um, quite a different um, style. And uh, I used, I would hunt him at little doves, little laughing doves, which are quite tricky. They're quite quick. Um, So to get any opportunity with them would be to find places where the bird could actually ambush them. So you're not really that involved. You're just spying the birds and trying to find the best place to, Put your hawk so that he can see where best to hunt from, and I think that taught me to work within the natural way of the bird of prey to hunt. You can't force it into a style that it's not suited for. Um, but I was quite young at that stage, um, you know, the gap of student life and early working career, and then moving back to. Uh, Back to a female African gossa she'd been flown by several falconers before me um so quite a quite an experienced bird with a lot of um a lot of habits she'd picked up um <laughs> from other people that that was quite uh, that was quite an experience what i what I learned there was to be very observant and 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 try to preempt problems before they occurred and so trying to think three or four steps ahead um just in the husbandry and the husbandry aspect um which was quite challenging but ultimately successful and uh my great i i caught with her a speckled pigeon or rock what we call a rock pigeon here and at dusk one evening on the farm the sun setting in the background and she caught a rock pigeon and my my season was made <laughs> um in that moment <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, and, and that's, and that's the next question that I want to ask is, um, you know, basically, you know, we have certain, you know, parts of our country, you know, we have certain prey base that's specific to certain areas. And, you know, I guess as far as just what in your province, like what's the, the, the prey base that's, that's hunted most, like what species are, are the species that you all typically hunt with whatever birds you're flying for the most part?
0: So I think with the with the African goshawks, people are hunting a lot of Indian miners, which is an invasive um, bird species that's come in from from Asia from India. Um, so they they get tar- targeted on the edge of the cities quite a bit, and quite a lot of um, plovers and lapwings with the African goshawks. But as the falconers tend to become more experienced and access get better access, the species diversity increases quite a lot. On, what they're catching um so with the goshawks, it's small mostly small birds but up to up to franklin swanson or orange river franklin if you're really lucky and have a dog um the vambo sparrowhawks it's a myriad of small grass birds um whether it's widers or queers or laughing doves just anything that comes up out of the grass gets caught um, and you see an impressive tally from the guys who fly those short wings. They're, they're such effective hunters. Um, the black sparrow hawks, those are targeting guinea fowl predominantly and the different franklin species. And then, then the long wings, it depends. The guys are either going after duck and teal, especially in the southern part of the province where there's quite a number of waterways and pans. But in the sort of eastern side where I am, it's pretty dry, so... Guys are uh, working dogs at Franklin. Um, so Swanson or Redneck Frank, Orange River Franklin, they're called.
1: Yeah, and I'm not gonna lie, I don't know what half of those are. You know, oh. <laughs> I'm not familiar with hardly any of those species. I'll have to, I'll have to you'll educate. Have to, you'll have educate to come myself. up and
0: come up and see it.
1: Yeah, I, I would love to. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I need to educate myself on a lot of these different species yeah, because. And throughout this next week, I'm probably going to feel like a very large idiot, not knowing what some of these, what some of these birds are and different, uh, different species of game are, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of the fun of, of doing this. I'm happy to learn more. So, and the, the folk with their
0: Lana falcons are catching a lot of doves. It's the one quarry you can be guaranteed to present because we have an artificial cliff in the city that's harboring huge quantities and they all move out every day to the farmlands to go and feed so your hmm. one thing you guarantee to find every day is pigeons um it's both a problem in terms of check and an opportunity so lana falcon specifically there's been a lot of good sport in the last two years with the guys targeting doves it's very accessible
1: and as far as like species that i mean is there any particular species that you aren't allowed to hunt
0: i think There's 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 a good deal of um, pragmatism from the conservation body side in the sense that they understand that you can't control once once your falcon is flying free, um, you have no real control, and um, you can increase your chances of your bird chasing a particular quarry by controlling a flush, but you can't control it to the extent where you can guarantee that won't catch certain things so there's an understanding that we should avoid certain species but if they do get caught then um, you know we should we should notify them and I think there's a there's a let lie policy so you mm-hmm. don't just don't take it home yeah um, yeah yeah which which makes sense and I think most of the species that are protected are not typical quarry species um that you would be interested in catching little songbirds and obscure thrushes and things they're not okay not really what 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 one would encounter in in the type of country you're going
1: out to fly in. gotcha Um, yeah so i mean it sounds fairly similar to the states then in that regard you know okay well and so i guess this is the part of of the conversation that you know i like to shift to as far as you know specific hunting story you know you've you're a listener so you've you've kind of you know you're familiar with a lot of this stuff by now but um you know as far as you know is there a particular uh, out of the birds that you have flown is there a particular hunting story or any particular characteristics of any of the birds that you've flown that that really just sticks out in your memory or you know, I mean, it seems like as as you've heard me mention before, it seems like every falconer has at least one or two memorable experiences in their head that kind of always pop to the forefront. You know, so if you wouldn't mind sharing at least one or two of those with us, it would be it'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, well, the question the question is, is it going to be? Uh is it going to be stories about how many frosty mornings one spent out looking for your falcon <laughs> it, it, it <laughs> i need to find matter. the transmitter does, on the ground
1: <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter i yeah. mean we all have we all have experiences that we learn from positive and negative and you know things that stick out in our mind you know just in general that we have this overall positive and negative so yes
0: yeah. no quite i think falconry is one of the Place so you can go from the highest high to the lowest low in the matter of a few seconds. For sure, um, that's uh, yeah. I think um, once it stands out um, as a you know young teenager flying my musket African goshawk um, was actually one of my first interactions with a bro- broader falconry group. Um, us being so widely dispersed in this country, uh, I was very impressed very enthusiastic to show everyone how my gossip would chase and uh we proceeded to a little farm along in, uh proceeded in the grassland along a farm road and uh off he chased and the next thing he disappeared below ground level and we looking and looking and he disappeared into reeds in in a little farm dam in the middle of june which is the middle of our our winter at dusk and uh my great embarrassment, I had to swim <laughs> to go and find my goshawk. <laughs> um, there's sort of n- not specifically a hunting memory, but a, a memory that stands out on the community spirit that exists. Um, you know, everyone getting together and, and going out and sharing in each other's misfortune um, in the field uh, It's quite
1: quite good yeah <laughs> which is you know usually much to to our chagrin but much to the amusement of, of others sometimes unfortunately <laughs> yes yes luckily 15 years down the line i can see the humanness yeah <laughs> not so
0: much not so much then um
1: <laughs> yeah well yeah. i mean we were part of our experiences you know like, as you mentioned the highest of the highs lowest of the lows in retrospect, oftentimes we have to find the silver lining in the, uh, in the lowest of the lows, because if we can't look back and at least appreciate, you know, just some of the humorous aspects of some of our greatest failures, then, <laughs> then it, we're not, I, in my opinion, we're not having as much fun, you know, as we could, you well, know? so certainly, yeah, <laughs> yes. but that's, that's awesome. Is there anything else that you can think of as far as, uh, any other memorable, you know, experiences or, or anything?
0: Uh, there 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 were many during those early years going out with my mentor into into that really high what i guess what we would call the high felt um around dalstrom which is which is quite a bit higher than where we are now, i think a thousand or one and a half thousand meters above sea level um and just just watching him work his dogs uh, to working two English pointers after Red Wing Franklin and working the Ridgelines and and having explained to me how to find them. I mean, you're in a sea of grass, you're looking after looking for one covey that might occupy a, you know, there's one covey per huge area and learning to work the habitat and, and then and then watching the dogs go on point and the excitement and, and, and seeing seeing things come together into that golden moment. Um there's those have been very few and far between um for me to experience those. Uh but there's this there's specifically an excellent experience up there just watching the sun on, on the grass and it's very difficult to explain it. Um, but, uh, the, those do stand out.
1: And as far as, um, you know, some of the, the lessons that the, uh, that the Lanner taught you, I know we were, we were talking before about, you know, just some of the, um, you know, the, the things that you have learned the most have been, you know, with, with the birds that you've had, you know, some of the biggest trouble with, because as we were talking about before, you know, I mean, you don't usually learn from birds that you just have a lot of success and not a lot of turmoil with. But I mean, what were some of the the best lessons you learned from the Lanner?
0: Oh yeah, so my Lanner falcon, which is which was a very challenging two seasons, um, successfully released back into the wild as a healthy bird, which is good. Um, I learned to track. <laughs> it was and 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 you also learn to think because t- telemetry I've learned is is not foolproof. Um, and very much I mean, the first time my Falcon slept out, she actually pulled the transmitter off because I hadn't mounted it correctly. I tried to do it myself without making the effort of going to a senior Falcon to show me how to fit a track pack properly. And uh, she pulled the transmitter off and I was very, very, um, very, very, lost when i found when i tracked the transmitter i did did everything (laughs) right i was there two hours before sunrise i tracked to within close to the transmitter and it was under a likely perch and i sat there and i sat there and it got colder and colder and the light started coming and eventually i realized there's no bird here and i found the transmitter and panic ensued and and then realized i just need to sit quietly and think where the most likely place for it to be and is and um she was right there on a telephone pole. (laughs) So so a little bit of calm was learned, fit your, fit your equipment correctly and, and, and just apply some logic as to where the likely place would be.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said for, you know, and, and we've talked about this before too, like, you know, I mean, learning the traditional ways that people used to have to do things before you know, a lot of the advent of a lot of the, the current technologies that are available to us, there's nothing wrong with that because you never know when you'll end up needing to use it. Because like you said, I mean, you never know when a transmitter is going to just randomly stop working or, you know, whatever the case might be, you know, you need to to learn. It's, it's just part of being a, a well-rounded Falconer, you know, so. But yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, the just kind of, any last thoughts or anything that you can think of before we kind of start to wrap up here? I mean, I'm sure that we could talk all afternoon about random things, but I mean, you know, like I said, being, you know, fairly new and not really knowing much about, you know, this area and, um, you know, that kind of good stuff. I mean, is there anything else that you think would be noteworthy to, uh, to mention as far as or anything specific to your province that, um, you know, that you would like to mention before we kind of wrap things up here or anything or?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, certainly a, a shared sentiment, I think, across the South African falconry community is, is sort of very deep appreciation for the privilege we have to be able to fly falconry. I think here right now, there's a lot of economic stress. Um, we see, a a reduction in the number of falconers, um we're under pressure from you know from society from an ignorant society on what we do and we we do work together quite a lot to make sure we have measures in place to keep falconry protected but overall being i think every everyone in south africa who is a falconer is very sensitive towards how precious and fragile falconry is and i Hope that everyone around the world appreciates just how how lucky they are to be able to practice it because here we certainly are and we certainly try to keep our standard as high as as high as humanly possible um because at the end of the day, if you can't do your bird's justice um you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing it,
1: yeah, yeah, and you know it just kind of goes hand in hand with yeah you know, I mean just yeah yeah. i mean falconry in general around the world i mean there are some things that that don't change fundamentally and yeah i mean that's definitely one of them you shouldn't if you don't have the time effort and energy to dedicate to it then you just need to bow out for a little while or you know figure out if it's really truly for you or not and yeah i mean it kind of goes without saying for for everywhere really
0: well yes but yeah. then on the other hand though falcon all around the world we have one thing in common which is falcon- falconry which is why you and i can sit from opposite sides of the world and we can spend a whole afternoon speaking on a common interest not having even spoken to each other two hours before this yeah so it's fantastic
1: yeah for sure and it's been very enjoyable and um like i said i'm very thankful for the opportunity and glad this all worked out but um as far as an ending sentiment to this conversation I mean is there any other piece of advice that you think that you would like to to pass on to other falconers as far as either just current or future generations and and um you know just kind of share that and then we'll we'll call this conversation good.
0: Yeah, I think uh what what makes what makes falconers is people getting out in the ground and 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 putting their birds onto real quarry. Um it's uh it really is the definition of falconry. And uh I think everyone must stay encouraged and and, and keep getting into the field and, and keep including more people. Um falconry is very niche and we do need more falconers, as as difficult as it is. Um it's definitely something we need to expose people to.
1: Well, like I said, man, I appreciate you doing this on short notice. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm glad we were in the in the right place at the right time to to be able to do this and, and make this work. And, um, yeah, I mean, appreciate your time and hopefully whenever, um, I don't know, there'll be a round two eventually, hopefully someday we'll see, but I, I would love to, to try and make it up to your neck of the woods and, um, you know, see some, some birds fly and, um, you know, like I said, I, I unfortunately, there's there's not enough time in the world, but uh, but I appreciate yours and, you know, for, for being here today.
0: Yeah, thank you. And, and everyone is welcome. South Africa is a welcoming place. If you want to come, just let us know. I'm sure we can put together, put people in touch with who they need to speak to to
1: see falconry in our country yeah perfect man well like i said thank you again so much and um yeah i mean otherwise i guess we'll we'll go ahead and wrap this then and head back to the the conference and uh see what else we can get into the rest of the day yeah for sure should be interesting all right thanks a lot see man you.